Thank you for the introduction. It's a privilege to be able to be with you today and open up the Word of God with you, uh, as well as open up some of the things that God has taught uh, my wife, Christina, and I uh, in the years since I left here, uh, and we've been serving in the city of Philadelphia. How about you, but uh, when I came to Princeton, I had visions of grandeur and greatness. Anybody with me? <laughs> a little bit? I wanted to be everything. You know, it, it was just a great, incredible, exciting opportunity. Maybe some of you grew up and you had the idea uh, from birth that you were going to come to this place and you knew exactly when you were going to get there, how you were going to get there, what steps you take after that, when you would manage your first hedge fund, when you'd be able to retire early and, and go off to your whatever your geriatric fantasy would be. Maybe that was all uh, laid out for you. But even if you didn't start out like that from birth, by the time you got to 16, 17 years old, uh, you learned about this place, right? About the opportunities that would be here and uh, all the wonderful things that could, uh, you could do once you were here and then once you went uh, further off. And I was uh, no different. I grew up in Oregon um, from a kind of a, a standard middle class, lower middle class family. We were definitely not uh, dirt poor, but none of my family had gone to college. And so uh, Princeton was this, this great, exciting kind of life changing opportunity. Uh, I flew over here sight unseen September of the year 2000, landed at JFK Airport in the middle of the night, uh, took the subway uh, and the train out here, got here on early on a Sunday morning, uh, and my life was set. Like was said, all, all these opportunities, I would never have to live the same life uh, that my family had lived. I would never have to work at minimum wage or low wage jobs, never have to be concerned about how to put food on the table. Uh, but instead, uh, the world was going to be my oyster. And, and in many ways, it seemed like it, it would be. And so uh, I, I got on campus and then I ran into some problems, some real difficulties. Uh, no, these difficulties weren't the kind that derail your grades, uh, the kinds of difficulties that involve you know, consuming incredible amounts of beverages on the street. No, uh, You move to the next slide, or a clicker or anything like that. Uh, I found Princeton to be a very dangerous place. And uh, maybe some of you can identify with Princeton being a dangerous place. Maybe it's, it's messed with you in ways you can't uh, bear to bring out in public. Uh, but my experience at Princeton uh, got really jacked up because I met these dangerous characters. Move to the next slide and see who they were. <laughs> and if you want to keep that dream of greatness, what I urge you to do is avoid these characters and their associates at all costs. <laughs> Look at them right there, acting as if they have nothing to, to do that will mess up your lives. Well, it wasn't so much uh, these two that messed up my life, but it's the one they're proclaiming, the one I assume that they've talked to you about, just like they talked to, to me about. Uh, and that one whom they talked to uh, me about was, was Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why it's such a, a privilege and a pleasure to be able to be back here and, uh, and just reminisce about the times where Jesus Christ came and met me right here. And he reoriented my life so that I could pursue greatness with him. What a privilege it is to be worshipers of Jesus Christ, isn't it? What a great thing he's done in revealing himself to us. And as uh, Bill and as Chris and as others opened God's word to me, and Jesus became more and more real, and his call on each of our lives uh, became more tangible. Uh, 
There began to become things that I couldn't ignore. Move to the next slide. Jesus, in, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, lays out all kinds of truths about himself. How many of you read the Gospel of Mark before? Anybody? Uh, so you've, you've heard about it. It's a short little story. And uh, in the midst of it, Jesus is operating at, at warp speed, right? Uh, the, he just continues to go on and on and on. Uh, the, the, the word you hear the most uh, in that gospel is this word immediately. The action just never stops. And so Jesus is healing people and he is raising people from the dead. And he's, he's teaching them. He's doing all kinds of stuff. But as you get toward the end uh, of, of the gospel of Mark, Jesus starts to lay some difficult truths out to his people. Uh, starting in those chapters 9 and 10, he takes his, his 12 uh, close to him. And he tells them these truths that, that despite the fact that, that they might expect that his uh, whole reason for existing, his whole reason for ministry is to uh, bring in a kingdom where they get to sit on the thrones, uh, where he's just a, a nice additional add-on. He tells them, no, his purpose is primarily to go to Jerusalem, to be crucified, to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men, and then to be raised up on the third day. And we know that the first time that Jesus says this is, uh, you know, his right-hand man, Peter, doesn't respond really well. Uh, he goes and he privately takes Jesus to the side and begins to rebuke him. I love that little picture. Jesus, Jesus is so sensitive to Peter, and Peter is so sensitive to Jesus. You know, Jesus, I'm not going to mess with you and back talk to you in front of all the people. So let me just remind you, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Yet, Jesus tells Peter those uh, inimitable words, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because, Peter, your mind is not fixed on the things of God. It's fixed on what? The things of man. And when Jesus, uh, two other times in the Gospel of Mark, brings out this truth that, that, that is, his basic purpose is to come and to die and then be resurrected, his disciples likewise don't respond very well. In fact, uh, in this key part, uh, passage right here from Mark chapter 10, uh, he gives us all kinds of details about what greatness looks like. Uh, did any of you have Bibles with you? I encourage you to take them out or follow along on the screen. Thanks so many to read uh, what the passage is from here, uh, Mark chapter 10, 32 to 34. Uh, Mark 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock, on, mock him and spit on him and fly him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Can we go on to the next one? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Doesn't that shake our worlds a little bit? Uh, Jesus lays out these truths in really explicit detail about uh, what his life and what his ministry is, is aiming toward, what it's all about. And then, of course, his disciples respond characteristically uh, with a, a lack of understanding. They come to Jesus, these two brothers, James and John, and they're asking that question that's on everybody's mind, right? Uh, how can I be the greatest? How can I be the one who gets to sit on the right hand and the left hand? They even preface their question with, with a, a preparatory uh, query, right? You know, will you give us what we want? You know, before they ask it. Maybe they know exactly what the answer is going to be like. But they, they do that. Yet Jesus then goes and again with love, what does he do? He flips the script on them. All the rest of the disciples are getting angry, uh, irked at, at James and John, indignant, uh, the gospel tells us. And what does Jesus say? He, he lays out for them the way that power works in this world. And, uh, the way the Gentiles, the nations, would approach uh, Jesus or approach any other uh, source of blessing would be to attempt to uh, gain power, to lord it over others, to exercise authority. But then Jesus makes this clear statement that among those who have been gripped by him, among those who have been brought into communion with him, among those who are citizens of his kingdom, it will not be like that. Not it shouldn't be like that, but it will not be like that. Because if you want to be great among God's people, then Jesus' mindset must be your own. Because what did Jesus come and do? He tells us he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as this truth became more and more clear to me, uh, it began to affect how I thought about uh, my life. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily mean that we then you know, sell everything we have, uh, we quit our dreams, we go live on a hut in a hut, and, uh, so that we have extra money to give to people that don't have money. It doesn't mean necessarily that our entire vocations get flipped up and, and screwed around, but it does change our mindset. That if we walk in the way of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve, then that ought to affect the way that we think about the decisions that we make in our lives. So in some ways, it's kind of odd to have me as a speaker for a global missions conference, right? When you think of global missions, what kinds of places pop into your head? Middle East. Right, Middle East, Africa. Others? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's really, really pleased that he can read those two words on the slide. So we'll give him his due right. Africa, the Middle East, and Topagasta, Chile, right? Uh, um, not necessarily places that are close to us, right? Philadelphia, or New York, or anybody from Cleveland? <laughs> Amen, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Toronto, North American cities. And uh, I think part of the reason why we think of that is because it's, you know, it, it's very easy to hear uh, stories about people that are called to go to those places and uh, and invest their lives into the work of the expansion of the kingdom of God. Um, but for most of us, we think, well, that, that's not something that certainly uh, involves me. After all, you know, I love Jesus and I, I want to see people come to know Him, but uh, I certainly don't have the skill set to to move to Istanbul or to uh, you know some place in the middle of sub-Saharan Africa. That's probably not uh, for me. What I want to encourage you with, though, is that uh, we're part of something that's so much bigger than just uh, the spread of the gospel in those far-flung places. And don't get me wrong, the spread of the gospel in places where Jesus' name is not yet known is so central to his mission. 
but really for every single one of us. Most of us, I imagine when you graduate, will end up living in a North American city, unless you're going back to a North American hut, right? Um, There are opportunities for us to be engaged in what God is doing. The question then is, does Jesus mandate? And does Jesus model? Does it grasp our hearts? How does it then affect us? Remember what Jesus said. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's when, when Jesus came on earth, his death was intended to affect something. It was, inten- it was intended to that he would be a substitute for the sins of, of not just one or two of us, but of people all over his world. Everyone whom he had chosen to be his before the foundation of the world. And so since Jesus has made this kind of investment in each one of us who name his name, we now are assured that he's made that same investment in the lives of all other kinds of people as well. And so that our mission that he's given us is to follow him uh, so that those, all those others whom he has bled, he has died for, might receive the blessings he wants to give, the blessings of his peace, his presence, his joy, the eternal life that he's come that we might have and have to the full. This is what Jesus uh, is all about, what he calls us to. Go to the next slide now. I ask you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. If you've read this chapter, if you've been around for talks like this, you might understand or think where right where this is going. Right, it's about to become now a guilt trip. Okay? Things are so difficult and rough in the world, and you're all nice, pampered Princeton students. So why don't you do something about it? Quit sitting around. And get up and act. And if we're not careful, in fact, that's how we can take this passage, Isaiah uh, chapter 58. But I'll suggest that in a minute there's a different way uh, to see it. First of all, look at what happens here in this passage. I'll read the first couple of verses. Uh, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You see the situation the prophet Isaiah is speaking to? Well, uh, the, the people that he's speaking to are the perfect kinds of Christians. Most of you, maybe not all of you, but a number of you would, would self-identify as type A individuals. Is that true? I know you. I was one of you once, right? <laughs> you can try to hide it. No, that's not me. Yeah, but we, when we go, as you get, as you, in order to get here, you have to have that mindset for the most part. We go after something. We go after it hard. And so if you made it for yourself the goal to be the, not just a, you know, a, a generic level Christian, but just a, an awesome Christian, then you would very much be described by these verses, right? Look at these people that Isaiah is talking to. It says they do what in verse 2? They seek God daily. Think about that. Well, some of us, in the midst of our studies and the other things we're into, open up God's Word daily is just not something that happens, right? Maybe know that we should. We see those crazy characters and feel a little guilty. You know, maybe this should be a bit more of a priority for us. But, but these guys right here, they seek God daily. And not only do they seek God daily, it tells us in verse 3 that they fasted. These are spiritual all-stars. These are... Phi Beta Kappa religious individuals. And yet, what is Jesus' word to them? What is the prophet Isaiah's word? 
right? Jesus would say the same thing. Well, he comes at them with some rebuke. Why? Because despite the fact that they have got this religion thing down and they're doing all the right things and they're checking off all the boxes, their hearts are closed. And they're hypocrites to a certain degree. And we think of the word hypocrite. Uh, we think of people whose lives are just... Uh, give a, a really incredible contrast between what God's Word says it should be and, and what they actually live. So someone that comes into this meeting, is, their hands are up, and they're saying, you know, shout to the north, and uh, and all the rest of this. And then they go right out, and they go, rob the wall, right? That, that's a hypocrite, isn't it? That's a hypocrite. But the hypocrisy that the prophet Isaiah is getting at is much more subtle, and it's much, much, much more Invidious. Why is it more invidious? Because it involves, on the one hand, proclaiming God's greatness and His goodness and His worthiness of our praise, but on the other hand, having an end at that praise, but not moving forward to actual work in God's vineyard. Right? Uh, where the hands are raised in praise, but they're not actually callous. And Isaiah's coming after that. He's saying, no, you guys, you, you know all the right prayers to pray. You know all the right songs to sing. You know all the right foods to avoid in your fasting. But, but the issue is, is that it hasn't yet come to bear in your everyday living. And again, he's not saying you all need to go sell your possessions and, and be poor and move to these other countries. But he's saying this needs to begin to affect the way that you think. So part, part of the problem here uh, for these people, what is it as you continue on uh, in the passage, is that they're, they're not aware of who God is. But they're also not aware of who their brothers and sisters are. As it continues on, uh, verse 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? The, the answer, the implied answer, uh, it, it, is No. Then Isaiah speaks these words. No, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And that's the more dangerous kind of hypocrisy. That can affect every single one. It's affected me. It affects me right now. And maybe it's uh, part of the enemy's plan to uh, mess with your time at Princeton. Not so much that you'd be tempted to go out and create and commit first-class sins, but that, rather that more invidious mindset of it, hiding yourself from your own flesh, hiding yourselves from your brothers and sisters would be something that happens. No, the call of God through the prophet Isaiah as well as through our Savior is instead for our eyes to be open to what's going on around us. For me, uh, at my time at Princeton, that took the form of uh, becoming more aware of uh, the situations that are happening in the city of Philadelphia. Perhaps that'll be uh, where you're called. Perhaps you'll be called uh, to different places. But uh, the things that have been going on there are well known to most people. If you follow the news, you can go to the next uh, slide. Okay. Uh, in the neighborhood that my family and our congregation worship in, uh, the Fairhill neighborhood of North Philadelphia, right about here, we're roughly three miles uh, from the Liberty Bell. You can go due south, and you'll be right there. Okay? Uh, another three, four miles from where the Eagles play, um, which is a, a source of significant pain over the years for, <laughs> for everybody uh, involved. Okay? Um, but more painful even than the Eagles continue with slumps it is, uh, 
it's just the basic situation of the people uh, in our neighborhood where the average income uh, in a household is $14,500. That will get you what? Maybe a semester's worth of meals at the Frisk Campus Center, right? It's not very much at all. And as we've come to know people in our neighborhood, it doesn't fail to change us. What's happening here? In fact, you can learn these things from newspaper articles or from engagement with people. But an author from the city's newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, a couple months ago, kind of really summed up the situation uh, in our neighborhood. He said this, In recent decades, the effects of the troubles of the industrial sector have affected North Philadelphia in particular, as many communities face an onslaught of economic decline. In more prosperous times, the area had a Nabisco factory, lace mills, and hay markets. But this district was hit especially hard by the downturn. Factories closed down, globalization transferred businesses and jobs overseas, the neighborhood suffered staggering unemployment and job loss, there were socioeconomic consequences, people were forced to deal with all sorts of unprecedented issues, drugs, crime, and poverty. And this has uh, been the story of where we live now for really the past 25, uh, the past 30 years. So on the next slide, okay. um, we'll get to, to these numbers uh, in a second. Uh, but we found is that in our particular area, uh, more than 67% of adults are either unemployed or not in the labor force. Meaning that not only have, do they not have a job, but they've actually quit looking for work. Okay? This is the, the way the situation is. The majority of people in the neighborhood, 49%, not quite a majority, but nearly a majority, are, are under age 19. Three and four are under the age of 30. And as a result of, of being in this neighborhood and dealing with these consequences, uh, our children are suffering. This is not, again, not anything new. In fact, this journalist, his name's Alfred Lee Ronald, continued. So there's the pressures of life here assail body and brain, releasing stress hormones in children as damaging, some experts say, as lead in the water. Battered residents, whether toxic squalls and bad times, and live in adrenalized, near-constant state of disaster readiness, akin to that of ancients, compelled to scout the camp perimeter for lions. Over the years, that tension ravages sick skin, Sickens organs, stunts brain growth, and hastens ambulance rides to crowded hospitals for heart disease, diabetes, and more. And so that's, that's what, what a journalist say, and we can testify that's been our, our experience as well. Okay? Uh, it's not necessarily because people in our neighborhood are, are, are a subset of individuals that have just nothing to contribute uh, to the world, as some from the outside might say, because there's been this combination of, of factors, both structural sin and then individual sin that conspired to, to bring people to a place where it seems like there's no hope. You might be thinking to yourself, well, well, this seems like primarily a problem for politicians, right? But when we look at God's word very carefully, both the passage from Isaiah as well as Jesus' own teaching and the teachings of uh, others in, this, in the scripture, uh, throughout the ages, we see that these things matter, and these people matter. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. Every single one of us, whether we are sitting in these chairs right here, or that we're sitting in a, a hospital in Philadelphia for seven hours trying to get medical treatment, because the only place we can go is an emergency room. People matter because we're created in God's image. So, we, we think again about our pathways to where we are. Uh, and children in our neighborhood uh, face 
daunting odds even before they get to kindergarten. There's been research about these matters. It's worthwhile to look at, not because we want to memorize statistics necessarily, but because we want our hearts and our minds to be penetrated in the same way that Isaiah has been talking about, right? We don't want to be in a place where we can be accused of, of looking away. And so, uh, children from high-income families have an average of a thousand hours of reading given to them by the time they get to kindergarten. Children from our neighborhood, an average of 25 hours old. You can imagine what the consequences are of that. The number of words that the children recognize by the age, that have been addressed to children by the age of four, 45 million for high-income families, 13 million uh, for children uh, in neighborhoods like ours. This is an individual SAT-style vocabulary where, where high-income children just know all these different words. This is just straight-up account of how many things have been spoken to them. And when you, when you think about your experience of being spoken to, you can see how that might have worked, right? If, if you're uh, in the corner in the back and you're falling asleep, there, there's two ways to deal with it. Someone could nudge you and say, hey, wake up! Or someone could uh, speak to you, hey, you should really uh, pay closer attention to what's going on. Uh, you should really move around, do some exercise, you know, whatever. Right? There, there's a difference in the way we speak to someone versus uh, shut up and stop it. Or this is why I'd like you to quit speaking. You know, that, that, those kinds of, of differences uh, begin to affect children. Such that by the time they get to kindergarten, there's already a gap in their abilities. And you combine that with schools that are oftentimes chaotic, and uh, you have a recipe uh, for a mess. So then what do we do about this? Well, we could read passages like Isaiah 15, and we could say, all right, well, then our, our mission is to go and do all these things. Uh, loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, uh, all, all these things that are said. Uh, share bread with the hungry, bring people in, into our house, and that's the way we go about that. I don't know about you, but, but I, I've heard messages like that before. It's kind of the, the currency that the media uses when speaking about issues of poverty. In American cities and otherwise, we just need more efforts, either from us individually or the government. Right? But the problem with that is, is uh, it's not sustainable. And the motivations are often messed up. God's primary way of getting at us is not uh, through guilt. Right? You better do this thing because I want you to feel bad. So out of your guilt, go and do this. So what we find when we dig into Scripture a bit more is we see that Isaiah 58 is fulfilled ultimately not by the people of Israel getting their act together and finally doing all these things and creating a just society on their own. No, all these things that are being talked about in Isaiah 58 are fulfilled ultimately by God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Think ultimately about what Jesus' ministry was about. The fast I choose, loosing the bonds of wickedness, undoing the straps of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, breaking every yoke. We think about our problem, our greatest problem, not just our, our, our grades or the question of how, what we're going to do in the next semester, but the greatest problem that we have, that problem of our sin and our alienation from God. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us right down to a T? He has loosed the bonds of wickedness that we have placed upon ourselves. He has set us free. He has placed upon himself and upon ourselves a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light instead of the burdens that we would carry if we had never come to know him. He is the one who shared not just his bread with the hungry, but his very body and his very blood 
He is the one who didn't just bring the homeless poor into his home, but he has brought all of us, wretches as we are, into his own household. So that we can look to his father and call that father our father. This is exactly what Jesus does. And when it came to the time when he had the choice to ignore his flesh, to ignore the people that shared his humanity, what did he do? He said, not my will, but what, but yours be done. Jesus is the one who fulfills Isaiah 58. And what that tells us then? is that our responsibility ceases to be, oh, go and make the world a better place on our power and on our authority and because of our good motivations. And it transfers all of that to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that has set this agenda. So all those statistics and all the rest of it, you know, that, that's, that's good and well to dwell on for a second. We have to understand that the one who is ultimately going to make that difference is Jesus Christ because it's his purposes that are being thwarted by the structural and the individual sin uh, that is going on uh, in our neighborhoods. So how then uh, does that affect us? Well, and, and what is Jesus' solution? Well, part of his solution we've come to see, my wife and I and others in, in our congregation, is his very body active in our neighborhoods. And one of the great privileges of my life is to be able to be pastor and to... Uh, some of these people here, there's a, a portion of our church, Ecclesia of North Philadelphia, and... Uh, being able to be on the front row and see how God works as he gets into people's hearts and minds and lives and brings change. It's just been such an, an incredible privilege. And as we prepare to move into our, our final section then, you might be asking yourself, well, God may not be calling me to go and be a pastor of a church in, uh, in, in North Philadelphia. So this this might seem irrelevant to me. Well, what does it have to do with me? Well, here, here are the basics. Is that God has called us all to be a part of his body in whatever place he puts us, amen? And uh, if you're called to be in, in a city like Philadelphia, we encourage you to do is be uh, part of God's reconciling people uh, in that place. It doesn't mean you need me to get advanced biblical training so that you can uh, spit out Greek paradigms, but taking just this basic truth that you have come to know and experience as you uh, heard it from individuals who have been commissioned to mess up your life, and then sharing that with others by uh, by teaching and by uh, your witness and by your presence is part of God's work of bringing His joy and His peace into others' lives. Move to the next slide. Uh, keep going. One of the things that we see here in, in our neighborhood, this is a... a, a schematic of the city of Philadelphia and it's kind of racial breakdowns is that in line with all those factories leaving and those jobs leaving, uh, one of the great tragedies has been the absence of God's people. Right? Um, in our neighborhood, there are all these great old stone churches, 100 to 120 years old, that were built when there were believers uh, in the area. But as things changed, they began to leave and move to uh, suburban locations that are better neighborhoods in the city. Uh, and, and those buildings have become vacant and vandalized or torn down in many cases. And even for uh, those churches that still exist in the neighborhood, so often uh, the popu they're populated by people who don't live uh, in the middle of the mess, but instead have moved to other places and then commute back in. Okay? Yeah, we don't want to be ju excessively judgmental about the situation, but you have to ask yourself, was this God's plan really? Um, that the people in, in, in our neighborhoods would have no 
witness or very little witness of uh, solid believers in God's word who are present right there in the midst of their situations? I think that that's not the case. So then that, that leaves us the question, well, what happens to us when we move uh, into these cities? One thing I want you to do is encourage you as you uh, consider where you go after graduation to think very carefully about where you worship. Because so often, there is a tendency and desire to worship God with people that are just like us. Right? That don't just have Jesus in common, common with us, but have every other possible thing in common. In, in some ways, of course, this is a, a very homogenous group of vision, and that's intentional. Most all of you are students at this university, right? Anybody, uh, is that true? Pretty much everybody here? Yeah? No, Maybe. Okay, some seminarians, right? Uh, but like attracts like, and that's often been the mindset that the church has used in order to grow. In fact, there's an entire principle named after this. If you want a church to grow, you bring people together that have multiple things in common beyond just Jesus. And that's all well and good if, if our purpose is primarily to be big. If our purpose is to show forth something of God's glory, a God who reconciles us not only to himself, but to one another, then part of this calling may be for you to be in a church where you're uncomfortable. Part of this calling may be for you to be in a church where you are a minority. Part of this calling may be for you to be part of a congregation where the worship isn't the kind that you would choose for yourself. And as you're in that place, you'll begin to find opportunities to love and to serve others right there, as well as to be served and to be loved by others. The great news that we have is that God is on the move. He's working in all places in His creation, including in Philadelphia and other cities. It's not that He's abandoned entirely these places. He's working. But the question then is, will His work be carried out by all whom He's called to have in this place? And so many of you have so many uh, great and incredible gifts. Without even having met most of you, we know that, right? Just because we look around, and none of us would be in this room if someone hadn't seen those gifts. So as I think about uh, the needs of our congregation, our families that um, now that are facing real difficulties uh, with education, uh, some of our other families where there are undocumented members uh, who uh, don't speak the language, what does that look like for us to come in? And use the gifts God has given us. Those are open questions, and I encourage you to think about them as you go in those places. Not necessarily because God's calling you again to, to just totally jump off the pathway that you're on right now, but that as you go about pursuing that pathway, you be open to what's going on around you in the places He's called you to be. That you wouldn't be satisfied just to be merely around those who are just like you, but instead you would recognize the call of the prophet Isaiah and your Savior, Jesus Christ, one who came not to be served, but to serve. And as we do that, as we lay down our lives in big ways and in small ways, what are the promises that accrue to us? In Isaiah 58, the words continue on. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire to scorch places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of seats to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not honor it, not go in your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. He will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See the great news that comes to us is we can't outgive God. We can't go to the problems of this world and say, All right, God, I'm going to sacrifice so, 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 so much and then expect nothing in return. But instead, when we invest in God and we give Him our lives, what does He do? He pours back His blessings upon us. Not necessarily by making everything perfect and wonderful. Not necessarily by taking away every kind of pain and difficulty. Just think of my own kid, my wife, Christina, will speak about this uh, in a minute. And the various neighbors that we've had uh, over the years, the ones that, that scream uh, crazy amounts of cursing in the middle of the night, such that my children have a really, really rich vocabulary. <laughs> no. Um, the fact that half the time when we come home, our entryway smells like weed. On the plus side, we don't have to pay for it when we're trying to feel like we need to escape. <laughs> Those little things, but even the more difficult things of, of living in ministry among people who, who love God, but yet still seeing so much destruction, so many difficulties, so many trials. People were, were praying for, and yet they walk away from it different times. I, I, I think of a particular mom, mother in our congregation who has uh, a whole series of children. Our oldest two uh, sons have, have both, at one time, had some interest in, in the Lord, but now have, have gotten fairly heavily involved in the drug trade. It's painful and it's difficult. There aren't promises that everything will be wonderful. But we do have the promise of God's presence and his joy as we 